finish up, and I, ha I had a lot of hard time with this sermon, and some of you may notice that as we go. It kept changing, and I kept not really understanding what the sermon topic, I mean, I know I was talking about joy, which is, you know, we're doing this series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we got through love. I'm on week five. I've gotten through one already. I move a little slow. You know that. Um, but I figured we got all summer to eat fruit, so that's not so bad. But um, last week, we talked about what joy wasn't, happiness. And that sermon's online, and that's, that was last week. This week, I was going to talk about what joy is. And um, for some reason, you would think that'd be easy. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible about joy. But every time I was praying about it and kind of going through the Bible, it kept going to these weird places that I didn't fully understand. So uh, bear with me. I'll get to joy, but I'm going to go through some other stuff on the way. So the very first thing I'm going to do uh, is go to something very familiar to a lot of you. Uh, because I'm going to go back into the book of Nehemiah. Now, those of you who've been here for a while know we had a marathon session through Nehemiah. It took me longer to preach on Nehemiah than it took Nehemiah to build the wall around Jerusalem. So just to give you an idea how long we were in there. Um, but we're going back to, an, to a passage we've gone over before, but I want to show you a couple things in, in, in this passage. And a lot of things kind of dropped out as I was doing my studies. So this is in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, for those of you who missed our marathon, let me catch you up real fast. Um, so this Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is written after Israel has been conquered and really kind of decimated as a nation. Uh, they were conquered by the Babylonians who captured Jerusalem, tore down the city, tore down the temple, carted off all the good stuff out of the temple, and they took a lot of people with them to Babylon. Some of the best and the brightest, the book of Daniel takes place at that time. And so that is all about that. There are other books in the Bible that take place during this time of exile for the Israelites. Now, after a while, after 75 years go by, um, Babylon is in turn conquered by Persia. So Persia and Xerxes conquers Babylon. And some more time goes by, but Xerxes and the Greek have a different approach to conquered nations. They think it's better if they actually man their own nation because they have more vested interest. So the Persian emperor says, you know what, any Jew who wants to return to their homeland, go ahead. You're allowed. You, it's, you, you're free to leave. Now, not everybody took them up on that. In the book of Esther, we talked about that. A lot stayed, but many of them did. They went home to um, Jerusalem. Now, this is 75 years later. So the people who are coming back to Jerusalem, I'm not saying they're going home to Jerusalem. They're really going to Jerusalem for the first time. They've never seen this before. And you can imagine they've heard stories from the parents and grandparents while they were in exile. And they have these expectations of what they're going to find when they get there. And they get there and it's just rubble. I mean, they tore it down and, and there are people living there, you know, almost like animals in like little tiny places they carve out in the rubble and maybe they build a house back up or something. But they don't do much. And the reason they don't do much is because they're surrounded by enemies. They always were, you know, but when David was there and then Solomon and God was blessing them, you know, God kept the enemies away. But as soon as God's hand was taken away from them, the enemies have always been there. And so because they're surrounded by enemies, as soon as they start doing anything at all that looks like they're prospering, the enemies just rush in and steal it from them. So they're kind of living in a very low-key, kind of stay under the radar, you know, it's before they had radar, but kind of stay under the radar, kind of an attitude in their lives. Uh, so they come back and they, they, they actually try to rebuild the walls uh, before Nehemiah and they're never successful. It isn't until God lays it on Nehemiah's heart and Nehemiah shows up that they're able to do that. So finally, for the first time in 100 years probably, or close to it, uh, they actually have walls around Jerusalem and the city finally has protection. They can actually feel somewhat safe. After that, they have this big 
meeting of everybody who's involved. They all come together, you know, and you probably think, well, this is going to be a ribbon cutting ceremony, you know. They're all going to have a couple people speak and they're going to eat stale cookies and they're going to go home, you know, like one of these great events. But instead what happens is um, they get together and the people cry out for Ezra, who's the priest. Now they rebuilt the temple in, in the book of Ezra. You can read about that. Uh, they rebuilt the temple and they cry out to the priest to come and read to them from the book of the law of Moses. Now, book of the law of Moses is usually means the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, called the Pentateuch in, in Jerusalem. So this is what they want them to read. They've never heard this before, probably, most of them. Uh, they certainly wouldn't have had it in exile. You know, they, you don't take scrolls with it. It's hard for us to believe when I have the Bible two different ways on my phone. You know, it's like hard for us to believe there was a time when Scripture was a precious commodity, but it was. They didn't have Scripture. They didn't have things written down. Ezra, however, had the entire Scripture collection, which was amazing. So they said, get Ezra out here and read to us. So Ezra comes out, and he stands before them, and he sits there and reads it. Now, watch the assembly, men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. So any, maybe some kids were there too, right? On the first day of the seventh month, in other words, how is this for perfect? July 1st, which is today. So we're covering this exact, uh, they, I know they had a different calendar, but let's pretend they're the same calendar we did. And they're there the same time we're here, July 1st. Here we are commemorating it. Okay, so he, he starts to read from the book. Now it's going to start with Genesis. He's going to start reading it from Genesis. He read before the square, which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, that's a long time, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive. They're all listening the whole time. No one's checking their phones or anything. They're actually, you know, listening. And all the people were attentive to the book, and Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this big event, right? He opened the book in the sight of all. He was standing above them, and all the people stood up. So as soon as, you know, he, he gets there, everybody's like, if they're sitting on the ground, they all stand up. This is interesting because I've seen some churches, they must have gone through the book of Nehemiah to, to say, well, that's what we should do. Whenever I read the scripture, everybody should stand up, right? And I've been in those churches. It's, it's, it irritates me. It's like I was just sitting down. I'm getting ready to take notes. Don't make me stand up now. So we don't do that here. Uh, but you know, I've been in churches. I don't know if you have. Everybody's going to stand. It never lasts, by the way. It seems to go on for a few weeks and everybody goes back to sitting down. But anyway, they all stood up. They started it. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with faces to the ground. So he's reading from the book, and everybody's amen and amen, and I don't know if you knew this, but amen actually means it is true in Hebrew. It's like amen. It is true. It is true. They're reading. And they bow down. They worship. It almost sounds more like a praise fest than reading the Bible, doesn't it? They're, they're lifting their hands in praise, and then they bow down. And they worship. And I'm like, wow, that's really, really remarkable. But you have to understand who these people were and what they're hearing for the first time. Now put yourself in their shoes. They're second and third generation exile. Exile is a really cool word which really kind of means slave. They were treated as slave and property by their captors. And then later on if they were given any kind of freedom at all, they were never given citizenship. They're second class citizens. They weren't allowed to eat in the same place as the first class citizens were. They weren't allowed to participate in things the first class citizens were. They were mocked and derided, and they could be really persecuted whenever the people wanted them to be. We see this in the book of Esther. They almost wiped them all out, right? So the Jews living in exile basically have had a life where they're just borderline slave, and in some cases literally slaves. That was their life. And everybody they knew who was older than them, that's their life too. So this is second, third generation, right? Now, you're a Jew, 
And you may have even had great-great-grandma tell you we're the chosen people of God. How are you feeling about that? Everybody you know, everybody you, you're related to, they're all in the same situation, which is basically slavery, but you're the chosen people of God. God must really not like us at all. God must hate us. In fact, a lot of Jews to this day will tell you Jews are just made to suffer. You know, it's like we're just here to suffer. You feel like losers. You feel like second-class citizens. And, and you don't understand any of this, right? Because you don't have the basis of Scripture to understand it. So Ezra stands up and starts reading from God's perspective the story of creation. And then they get to Abraham, they find out about Abraham's great faith, and they start hearing about the founder, the, the father of the Jews, Abraham, and his life, and how he was faithful, and, and Isaac, and Jacob, and they start, they start hearing all these wonderful things. And then we hear about the bondage in, in, in Egypt, but we hear how God destroyed the leader of the most powerful nation on earth to free them and pull them out of their bondage. And this is just hitting them like, oh, man. This is what it is. This is what it means to be the chosen people. And so they're really excited about that. So the Levites explained it, right? But then they come out of Genesis and Exodus and they get into Leviticus, my wife's favorite book of the Bible. All you Pharisees, favorite book of the Bible. This is the book of the law. And the, and the scribes start explaining that to them. They start explaining, you have to understand that God chose you, but he called you to be set apart. You were to be a beacon for the whole world. The way God treated you and the way you had a relationship with him was supposed to declare to all the world what it was like to serve the living God. And as part of the favor, there was a requirement for you to keep him as your God. Not to be like everybody else, but to keep him as your God. And all of a sudden, they see for the first time, they were in bondage, not because God hated them, but because their ancestors disobeyed the Lord. And, the, and because the ancestors, what they really wanted to do was they just wanted to be like everybody else. They start off great. You know, if you look at Isaac and Jacob, they start off great. But after a while, in the book of Samuel, you'll see its turns. They say, you know what? We want to be like everybody else. We like the favor of God, but we want to be like everyone else. The problem was, in the law, it says, if that happens, I will treat you like everybody else. I will remove my favor from you. And they're kind of seeing for the first time this whole thing is actually the fault of their ancestors. It isn't God deserted them. They deserted God. They wanted to be like everybody else. So God says, sure, you want to be like everybody else? Then go be like everybody else. And then they realized the reason we were in bondage because of disobedience. And what happens next? <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? There's no crying. Of course, the part of Nehemiah played by Tom Hanks in this movie. So you're crying. What's going on? Why are they crying? They actually start weeping. They go from praising the Lord, bowing down and lifting their hands to weeping and crying. In fact, in, in Nehemiah, it's actually described as mourning, which is like the kind of sadness you have when somebody dies. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the Levites all taught the people. And he says, look, don't mourn or weep. Stop your crying. Why are you guys crying? You need to stop your crying. But they're mourning because they understand something very, very important. They understand that their problem is their sin. See, that's a big revelation. When you think that you're in your situation that you're in just because, you know, other people and you're a victim or my parents did this, but they realize our parents are no different than us because we're living exactly the same way our parents were living when God said, okay, fine then. Fine. You don't want to be my people? 
I won't be your God. And they're living the same way. They're not better. They know they're not better than their parents. In fact, they're probably worse. They've done things to get in, right? They've, they're living around people who want to hurt them, and, and they're powerful. And so they'll do things to compromise their beliefs in order to get by. It's called survival mode, right? Maybe some of you have been in that situation at work or something. I go into survival mode. I do things that maybe I don't like necessarily, but I have to to survive. Maybe you've been there, and that's where they've been. They've done the same thing their parents did, and they realized the sin that got our parents separated from God is still here with us. And they start weeping because they understand it. But Nehemiah says, I need you to stop. I need you to stop crying. Everybody stop crying and listen to me for a minute. This day is holy to the God, to your God. But the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. So, so here's the thing. What's happening at the, right now is something we would call the beginning of a big word in the Bible, repentance. Right? And preachers love saying repentance and making a five-syllable word. Repentance. Right? You need to repent. Repentance, this big scary word in the Bible. First of all, let me just tell you what the definition of repent is. It isn't really scary. Have you ever been driving with a GPS, like I always drive the GPS because I get lost easy, and you miss your turn? What does the GPS say to you? Make a U-turn if possible, right? I like seeing how many times I can make her say that. Let's keep driving by all the turns to see how often she goes. Make a U-turn if possible. Ha <laughs> not yet. Yeah, not possible yet. But make a U-turn if possible. That's repent. Repent's like you're going this way. It's the wrong direction. Turn around that way and go that way. That's repent. Repentance is to turn around opposite direction you were heading and head back that way instead. That's what repentance is. It's a scary thing because we know that repentance means change and change always, always scares us. Repentance always begins when we understand the gap between our actions and God's plans. See, repentance nobody ever does if they think they're right. Have you noticed that? When somebody really thinks they're right, they won't change. <laughs> if they think they're right, there's no reason to change that things are going pretty good. I got this. Repentance is when we realize what I'm doing isn't working. I need to change it somehow. But when we come to God and we have our actions and what we do and what we expect and we see what God's plans for us are and we realize we can't get there unless we turn around the way we're heading, that's when repentance begins. The problem is that in human analogy, we, we call this a human apology because they don't use words like repentance in, in, our, in our world. In our world, when somebody does something bad or something wrong, and boy, do we see this like about every other week now, you know, somebody tweets something they regret, right? So when they do something bad, when they do something wrong, then what we have to see are two things. We're looking for two things as a human being. We want to see sorrow and we want to see suffering. Now, depending on where they are in the political spectrum, from a political stand, from a you know, public standpoint, it depends on how much suffering you want to see. If you kind of like them and they screwed up, ah, that's okay. They're sorry. That's okay. But if they're not, you know, you want them prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Their career's done. You know, we're going to use this to take them out. And that's kind of where the world is today. But really, that's kind of where the world's always been. It's just getting public now. Because, you know, Victoria and I, we've been pastors for a while now, and we've done a lot of counseling. And we've seen this come together in a very personal way as we talk with people. You know, and I'm, I'm not going to obviously betray any trust. So let me make up something. This is made up. Trust me, this is made up. But if, um, let's say there's a, a, a husband and a wife, and let's say the husband has lived rather selfishly for a very long time, and he's emotionally angry and abusive to the wife and kids. And he uses his anger as a way of controlling the situation so he can continue to be selfish, okay? Um, and finally, she's had it. 
you know, and, she, and she's really gotten upset. And so he's finally kind of realizing maybe I, maybe I need to listen to her because she's been nagging me to go to counseling. We'll go to counseling. Now, if those people come into our counseling, uh, it never goes well the first time because he's sitting there the whole time hoping he has an unbiased judge here in me and that he could just explain, well, I could just explain to his wife why she has it good and he, she should just listen to him and, and we can go back to being what we were because that meeting never goes well and they'll leave because he'll con be convinced I can fix this on my own. I don't need some kind of stupid pastor. So he'll go off on his own. They'll come back later and it'll be worse because this time the wife has said, that's it, I'm leaving. Now, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to lose his wife. He doesn't want to lose his family. So now he comes back, and he really is a different person. He's contrite. You know, there may even be tears, real tears. But that's not enough. Because now the wife wants to see him suffer a little bit. Because she's been suffering for 20 years. It's his turn. And if I get a little bit of tears, that's okay. But I want to see a little bit of suffering. That's how I know that he's sincere. Okay? And... This isn't going to go well either, by the way, because after a period of time, he'll do that at first because he's trying to fix the problem. But as soon as it gets a little bit further on, he'll go, you know what? I've cried and suffered enough. It's time for you to forgive me and let's just go on. And now she gets angry at him all over again. And this is a cycle that we have seen played out many, many times, right? And this is, this is called counseling. This is what we see a lot. The problem is that repentance is not the result of sorrow and suffering. That's what we want to see as human beings because that's what we see. But that's not what true repentance is. Now, you probably think, well, yeah, of course, there has to be the desire to change or we're not going anywhere. And that's, you know, I've been to counseling. That's why they start out. What is your desire to see this marriage saved, right? On a scale of one to 10. And, you know, someone will give you a number, you know, nine. And then you ask the other person, what is your desire on a scale of one to 10? Nine. Well, you know, if you guys are both nine, what are you here for? You know, you'd think that you both want to solve it. It should be solved, right? You know, now, usually, you, you get, don't get that. You get one person give you a 10, and one person give you like a negative three. And that's when you, that's where you know the, where the hurt is, right, by, by that. But um, if that person comes around and says, I, I want it, I, I have strong desire, then we think, well, then that's good. But unfortunately, even that is not going to bring you repentance. I hope I'm not depressing anybody today. But sorrow plus suffering, plus desire to change will not bring repentance. And I've actually seen this play out and been frustrated by it because it's like I think we have all the pieces we need to see true repentance, but I'm not seeing true repentance, God. What am I doing wrong? Uh, clearly, I'm failing as a counselor here because we should see repentance here, and we don't. What's going on? And, and that's what God started revealing to me through all this because he's talking about repentance, really, in this book of Nehemiah, that people are going to come to him and repent. And he says, you need to understand something. I do not delight in your tears, and I do not delight in your suffering. And I thought, man, you just blew away about 100 years of theology. Because I've been to churches, they're all about tears and suffering. They were all about it. You're like, that's what you need. You need to repent, and you need to get on your knees, you need to grovel. You are, the, you are a sinner in the hands of an angry God, and you need to, you need to act like it. You know? and, and, and so you need to grovel a little bit. And God's saying, no, I don't need... I don't need tears and I don't need groveling. I don't need suffering. Because God sees our heart. He said, what I need to see is a heart change. That's what I'm looking for. And the reason he told them in the book of Nehemiah, don't cry, is because he saw their heart. He saw their hearts genuinely broken and genuinely saying, we want to be your chosen people again. We want that. Now, they don't know how to get there. The journey there is going to be impossible for them to get to there on their own. But God's okay with that. Because he's God. 
What he needs is an open heart. Remember, we talked about the sower. The sower sows the seeds. What's the seed? The seed's his word. What's the soil? Our hearts. He needs that in order to build his fruit. That's what he needs. He can create change. He can bring us through repentance. But, we, but the tears don't matter, and the suffering doesn't matter, and our desire doesn't matter. What matters is the desire of God. And that's where I never really caught it. Because, and I thought, well, why is that? Why does the desire alone not work? And he revealed it to me. The reason is because no one actually wants to change. They simply want to change enough to make the suffering stop. See, when we come together and we're having this meeting, they've had a long life, 20 years of marriage. There's been a lot of stuff that's happened in 20 years. Those of you who have been married for 20 years. Actually, I haven't. 16, I should use 16 years. I've been married for 16 years. We've been over a lot of road in 16 years. Victoria and me, right? A lot's happened in our marriage in 16 years. But if I've hurt Victoria and she's crying and I want to make that stop, all I want to do is rewind the clock to that point. Because everything was fine before then. Now she's crying. So if I can just back up to that point there and make a different decision, she won't cry. What I don't realize is she's been wanting to cry for 16 years. It's just that one pushed her over, right? And the problem is that our lives, we don't want to change. We don't really want to change. What we want is to change the problem. And that's why people come with desire. It's not enough. Because what you're really desiring is, I just want to change the problem. And this isn't, I'm talking about terms of relationship. Repentance is more than that. This could be a drug addiction. This could be pornography addiction. This could be an eating disorder. This could be an anger problem. This could be, uh, you know, an affair. It could be many, many things in our lives, right? And we see it and something finally gets to us where we want to see this change. This is not good. I need to change this. What we want to do is, God, I want to back up to where things went bad and fix it. And God said, that's not how it works. What you need is my desire in your heart. What you need is for me to plant my seed in your heart. Turn your heart to me and I'll take care of it. Because God's going to take us back to the point he saw it go wrong. Which is, I can tell you, a lot further upstream than we got there. Right? Because true repentance always begins with the word of the Lord. And the reason they hit true repentance here is because they had the word of the Lord for the first time in their lives read to them. They never heard the word of the Lord before. Never. For the first time, the word of the Lord is being implanted into their hearts. And they realize, we have to be changed. And God says, I know you do. Don't worry. I've got this. Now, what happens to us is we go to God the same way we go to a human. We assume God wants to hear us cry, and he wants to see us suffer. And so we go to God, and we, you know, gin up the tears. Maybe they're even, even you know, truly, truly there. And, and we go, and we say, I'll do whatever you want, God. Do you want me to go, you know, work at a homeless shelter? I'll suffer. However you want me to suffer, I'll do. I'll give up ESPN for the month. Whatever you want me to do to suffer, I will suffer, right? I'll suffer. I want to do that. God said, I don't need you to suffer. I need your heart to be open to change, my change. And, and, it, and if we're crying out to the Lord all the time, uh, we start thinking that is repentance. But crying out to the Lord is not repentance. Crying out to the Lord is not repentance. And this is our problem. We stop there. We cry out to the Lord, get his attention, and God says, and now what? Now what are we going to do? Where do we go from here? See, Nehemiah actually gives them very interesting instructions here. He says, okay, listen, stop crying. Here's what I want you to do. Go eat. Now watch what he tells them to eat. God, I love scripture. Memorize this one, guys, because you need this next time you want a steak dinner. Okay. Uh, go eat of the fat. Get that good marbled steak, you know. Go eat of the fat. Drink of the sweet. Hallelujah. Sweets are mentioned in the Bible as a good thing. 
go get sweets. Go get that milkshake. It's okay. Drink of the sweet. And look, send portions to him who has nothing prepared. So in other words, some of your neighbors, they're poor. They don't have enough to have a feast. Give them something for a feast. We are all going to come together and we're going to have a feast because this is a holy day of the Lord. Do you understand what he just said? This is a holy day of the Lord. Let's go have a feast with the fatty, fatty meat and the sweets. Let's hold nothing back. That's not how I normally do feasts to the Lord. I don't know about you, right? Like peace of the Lord. Isn't that like, you know, when we have unleavened bread and, and, and Brussels sprouts? I don't know. But he said, no, I want you the best you've got. And if your neighbor doesn't have anything, give them something so they can do it too. Why? Because he wants you to experience his joy. I, I want you to understand that he's saying, I need for you to experience God's joy. And I need for you to plan to experience God's joy. Make room in your life for God's joy. That's what he's saying. I need you to do that. Go, everybody make room right now to receive God's joy. Well, I thought we were having a repentance. We are. But you need to experience God's joy. Why? He tells them this, and this is a famous verse. You may not know this is from Nehemiah. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You can't do this alone. You're going to need the joy of the Lord in you. Because believe me, it's a long journey between where you are and where God needs to take you. You can't get there on your own, but rejoice. You don't have to. God says, I have a plan to bring you there. I'm going to get you there. What you need to do is stay focused on me. I can fix this. You can't. Rejoice because I'm here. This is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is no matter how bad our circumstances are, we know our God is greater than our situation. That's the joy of the Lord. If we focus on the situation, we're going to be worried and we're going to have fear and we're going to start living like the world. Well, God says, no, you don't live like the world. You turn your eyes on me and rejoice because I am here. You're not alone. When, uh, when Victoria and I were going to get married, she came over on something known as the K-1 visa. It's a fiancé visa. So she came over here and she had 90 days where she had to either marry me or go home. So if you want to know how she ended up married me, she was rushed. That's the answer to that question. Um, but anyway, so in, in order for in those days when we got married, uh, we did not have an embassy in Ukraine. So the nearest embassy we had was in, in Warsaw, Poland. So Victoria had to go to Poland, that's a different country, and uh, they had to have an interview. They looked over all the documents and they had to make the decision whether this is legitimate or not, or she's just scamming it to get over here and you know, disappear in some nefarious way. So there's no guarantee that the agent, who by the way is a US citizen, he's hired there, um, there's no guarantee they're gonna say yes. So she's gathering up everything she owns and she can fit in a suitcase, or on her person because those days they're really careful about what jewelry and stuff was leaving. So every piece of jewelry she could, she wore, you know. And uh, she gathered up a 10-year-old boy who was sick at the time, bundled him up, got on a train, went into Warsaw without ever knowing if they're going to say yes or, yep, sorry, we're not going to accept this, go back home. Now imagine that, right? So she's coming in there. Um, I felt awful about that. I mean, I was, Im I was imagining this and I thought, this is, no, this is no good. And I talked to the INS horrible organization. I talked to the INS. They said, there's no point in you going. You can't help. They're not allowed to talk to you. She has to answer all the questions because they'll think you're prompting her. You can't help her at all. So you might as well not bother going. She needs to do this on her own. I thought, man, there is no way I'm going to let her go through this alone. I may not be able to help, but I can be there. And so I flew into Warsaw and we all got together. Uh, and so I was, not, I was supposed to not be able to help them. But just me being there with her 
made her feel a lot better, right? Just in the presence of somebody you knew loved you, knew cared about you, and would do whatever he could to help you. And by the way, being a U.S. citizen did play a part. We didn't have to wait in the cold. <laughs> it was funny. There was a big long line. I was, I was living in Texas this time. And um, so I had this big coat that I bought just for the occasion, but I was still in sneakers. And I was like, hey, this, this guy, I can't believe he's lived this long, you know? And so we're standing in Warsaw, Poland on December 10th. It was like negative something. It was, it was in, it was in uh, you know, metric system. I don't know. It was cold. It was so cold. And I was in Texas. Everything felt colder. And so we're, there's this long line of people. We got there early. We're like behind, I don't know, 50, 60 people. This sidewalk with a yellow line down it, everybody's on this side of it. So we got in behind everybody else, you know? And I'm bouncing up and down. And, and, and all of a sudden, a you know, loudspeaker, excuse me, you in the black coat. You know, me? Yes, sir. Are you a United States citizen? So yeah, I guess it was obvious, right? Everybody else was dressed for the weather. This kid must be for somebody. He said, please step to the right line. So there was no line on the right. So we stepped out and we walked all the way up to the door. You know? And as soon as we got to the line, it bang, the door opened up and we walked straight in. And so I couldn't help her officially, but unofficially, we waited in the warmth. You know? So anyway, she got through it. But, but the point is, just me being there made the situation better. Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe a parent or something. And they, they can't do anything necessarily for you, but just because they're there, you feel better, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's something that happens. Well, here's the thing. God being there makes it better, except he can do things. So he's like the next level because he is the high king of heaven and he's there. And God said, this is why you rejoice. This is why you have joy. Not because the situation went away, but because I entered the situation and I'm greater than the situation. This is the joy. So you need to make time in your life to find joy in the Lord. And this isn't some kind of you know, positive power of thinking kind of thing where I'm trying to make myself happy. This is just you focus on God and your spirit will touch the spirit of God and you'll feel his joy. This is what Nehemiah is saying. Now's the time of joy. The moment for rejoicing is the moment when the God's word comes into our life. I'm going to say that again because we don't do that. The moment for rejoicing is when God's word enters our life. Now that could be a scripture you read that just affects you and God whispers, this is yours. It could be somebody who speaks to you and you could just feel that was God speaking to you. God has spoken in your life. That's the moment of rejoicing. But that's not how we do it. Well, I'm going to wait a little bit. There's a story that happens and takes place in the book of Mark uh, where a blind man sitting by the road. Now he's a beggar. He's begging People know who he is, but he can't see. And if you can't see, you can't really work. And so he's sitting by the side of the road, dirty. And, you know, people were mean to beggars in those days. So he's sitting there in his tattered clothes because, you know, he doesn't know. He doesn't even know what he looks like. He's just put on his clothes. And he's sitting there in the dust. And people, like, throw things at blind people and watch it hit him and laugh. You know, they're mean to him. So this is his life. He's got no prospect of anything except begging for, for, for you know, enough money to buy enough to eat. That's it. So he's sitting there. And he hears Jesus walking by. Now, he's heard of Jesus. He doesn't really know who he is. He can't see him. But he hears Jesus walking by. And so he starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody tells him, shut up. Don't bother Jesus. He's busy. You know, he's a, he's a big guy. He's like a rock star at the time. People coming to listen to him. He says, shh, shh, shh. You be quiet. Except for Jesus stops and hears him. And says, bring him to me. Now all of a sudden, we say, oh, you know what? Yeah, hey, come on. I'll, I'll help. I know this guy. I'll help him. So all of a sudden, everybody's helping him get up to Jesus, right? So he says, they call. They say, hey, don't worry. Be of good cheer. Rise, because he's calling to you. And so they bring him forward. And um, they, he throws aside this garment he has, which is a begging garment. He rises and goes there. And Jesus looks at them. And I love what Jesus says. What do you want me to do for you? 
Now that might seem like a really dumb question, right? But all he asked was have mercy on me. Just let me pray for you. What, what, what mercy do you want from me? What do you want? This is not so stupid because this man's life's a wreck. He's blind. He's a beggar. He's got no friends. He's got no money. He's got no job. He's got no prospects of a job. He's been sitting there long enough. You know he's got sores. His, I'm sure his joints are aching. He's got a thousand problems here. One of which is he's blind. But that's not his only problem. So Jesus looks at this mess of a man and says, what do you want me to do? And he says, please, Rabbi, I only want my sight. Can I please have my sight? And Jesus says to him, yeah, go ahead. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. Now watch what happens. And he followed Jesus praising God. And when all the people saw it, they praised God too. Notice Jesus said, go on your way. Go wherever you want to go. Your sight is restored. And he gets up. And where does he want to go? He follows Jesus. And he starts praising the Lord. Why? Don't you think he should wait a little bit to see what the rest of his life is going to turn out to be before he rejoices? Okay, he's got a sight. He still doesn't have a job. You know, he's still achy. He you know, doesn't have any friends. He probably has all kinds of different ailments on him too. Don't you think he should wait before he rejoices? You ever think about that? Because we do, don't we? God does something incredible in our lives. That was cool, God. I'll rejoice as soon as you handle these five things too. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until I start rejoicing in the Lord. I'm going to wait here. God's saying, no, the time to rejoice is the moment the word enters your life because that changes everything. And we have to understand, we'll go through this real quick and then we'll be done, what the word of the Lord means. And we see this show up in many, many scriptures. Um, I'm going to cherry pick a couple of them. Romans, this is a very famous one. He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about Abraham and he says, look, Abraham hoped against hope. He had no hope. And against that, he hoped anyway. That's what he's saying. Uh, he might become the father of many nations. Now, he's 100 years old and his wife's 90, and they have no children. Okay, so he, but he's still hoping. Now, there's not much hope there, but he's hoping anyway. Um, he, he says, because he was going to be that, watched according to that which had been spoken. God's word spoke in his life. You will be the father of a great nation. Now, his life is not fixed Nothing has happened. God spoke these words 25 years ago. You will be the father of a great nation. And he's still going to hope against hope that it'll be true because God spoke it, right? And he says, um, he, without becoming weak in faith, so he, he kept hoping, he thought about his own body, which is as good as dead. He's 100 years old, you know, because some things have to happen, right, for him to have a baby. That's uh, probably not going to happen in 100. But... But he, he, he looks at the truth. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't deny the truth. The truth is, yeah, he's, he probably can't have it. But he still has his hope in the Lord. Because God spoke to him. And then um, he says, okay, I'm going to continue to have that. And I want you to see how Paul puts this. I love to put it. With respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver. Why? Because he was fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. If you look at your circumstances, your joy gets stolen. You need to keep your focus on the Lord. And understand that what God speaks, He does. 
Now, there's a really couple, couple other places I could have gone, but I want to show you this because this verse is really cool. Some of you guys like this stuff. We're going to go deep into an etymology of a word here. Some of you guys like it. Some of you feel like you're in school. But this is really, really cool. There's a verse in Luke which an angel says. He's talking to Mary. He says, for with God, nothing will be impossible. This word nothing is actually a compound word. Uh, for us, it is too, right? No thing, nothing. That's a compound word. But in the Greek, this is a really, really cool compound word because it's made up of three parts. The first part is like a negative sign. It's like if you have a one, you put a negative in front of it, negative one is the opposite of it. That's what it starts with. So it's the opposite of what I'm going to say, is what he said. And then the next thing is, the word means all things. Or each and everything would be another interpretation of it, right? Each and everything. But look at the last part of that word, rhema. Now some of you may have heard the word rhema before. There's a rhema Bible school. There was different rhema ministries. You may have heard the word rhema. Rhema means the spoken word of the living voice. In this case, it's the living word of the living God. So when he says nothing, when the angel says nothing, what he's actually saying is the spoken word of the living God can accomplish each and everything it's sent to do. In other words, God's word contains the power that it needs to accomplish what it was sent to do. Elsewhere in the Bible, God says, my word never comes back to me empty. He puts in the word itself the power it needs to achieve what it has to achieve. This is why when God plants his word in your heart, you know, the sower sows the seed, which is the word of the Lord, it has the ability to do everything it needs to do. When God speaks into your situation, even no matter how bad the circumstances are, that word has built into it everything it needs to have in order to accomplish what it's doing. Just his word. That shouldn't surprise you because God created the entire world with the word, right? In the, the word. So for I, the Lord, will speak, he says, and whatever word I speak, it will be performed. And then he says back in, in uh, Numbers, he says, God is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of a man that he should be, repent. He has said, will he not do it? He has spoken. Will it not make good? Here's the thing. The joy of the word, Lord is your strength and your hope. No matter what your situation is in. That's why we don't base on, as happiness is based on situation, joy changes your situation. We need to focus on God. Because when he shows up, the word he speaks brings you hope because the word he speaks has the power he needs to accomplish what he set out to do. Would you all please pray with me?